This episode is being published in collaboration with Marxist Paul. He's produced a video on the history and contemporary Maoist movement in India, and it's being published at the same time as this episode. Marxist Paul produces educational videos on Marxism and historical events. And these videos are an excellent resource for comrades involved with producing revolution, organizing the masses, and to understand our world today. Be sure to follow him on social media and support his work. Links are provided in the show notes. First of all, I think one question that you, you know, we have to ask is who do we mean when we say Maoists? And who does the Operation Green Hunt want to target? Because, because for sure, you know, there's this kind of discrete separation being made that here are the Maoists and here are the tribals. Or on the other hand, people saying, oh, the Maoists represent the tribals, neither of which is true. The fact is that about 99% of the Maoists are tribals, but all tribals are not Maoists. Mm -hmm. But still, the numbers run into the tens of thousands of people who would officially call themselves Maoists. Among them, 90,000 women belong to the women's organization. 10,000 belong to the cultural organization. In a system, in a war that's being pushed on the people, and that, unfortunately, is becoming a war of the rich against the poor, in which the rich put forward the poorest of the poor to fight the poor. You know, so the CRPF are terrible victims, but they're not just victims of the Maoists. They are victims of a system of structural violence that's taking place that, uh, that is sought to be drowned in this empty condemnation industry that goes on, which is entirely meaningless, because most of the time the people who condemn them really don't have any sympathy for them. They're just using them as pawns. Arouse, organize, mobilize, yeah, baby, yeah. Salam, welcome to Politics in Command. Today we'll be talking about Arundhati Roy's book, Walking with the Comrades, published by Penguin Books in India in 2011 and in the US the following year. This is an excellent introductory book to learn about the protracted people's war in India, led by the Maoists and tribal peoples of the country. Roy elegantly writes about the heroic struggles of the soldiers, the cultural performers, the village people, and the beautiful surrounding forests. To start, let's listen to Roy in her own words. We were talking uh, earlier in the show about battles over corporate control of Indian land. Um, you recently published uh, a long essay about your travels with the Maoist insurgency. And in it, you argue that rather than being uh, India's gravest internal security threat, as your prime minister has argued, that the Maoist insurgency is about indigenous people trying to protect their land from corporate takeover. This is not an analysis which is uh, widely reported. You've been on the inside and the outside of this movement, and you've been studying it for years. What, what have you learned? Well, first of all, I, I mean, the first question would be the use of the word Maoist insurgency, you know, because actually what the, the Maoist movement in India has had several avatars, but uh, basically they, 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 the first uprising was in 1967 in, in, in West Bengal in a village called Naxalbari. Which and is why they called it the Naxalite. The Naxalite, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Although the Naxalite uprising and the contemporary Maoist movement are different, the revolutionaries today are called both Maoists and Naxalites, and they are used interchangeably. But always at the center of the Naxalite movement have been tribal people, indigenous people, who have a history of resistance and rebellion that predates Mao by a few centuries. But why were they suddenly, why did they suddenly become an internal security threat? Because in 2005, a few things happened simultaneously. One is, if you look at a map of India, the forests, the tribals, the minerals, and the Maoists are all stacked up on top of each other. And in 2005, uh, the government signed MOUs, that's Memorandums of Understanding, worth billions of dollars with uh, mining corporations. A Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, is an agreement between two or more parties outlined in a formal document. It is not legally binding, but signals the willingness of the parties to move forward with a contract. The MOU can be seen as a starting point for negotiations as it defines the scope and purpose of the talks. And such memoranda are most often seen in international treaty negotiations, but also may be used in high-stakes business dealings, such as what is happening in India. Just the bauxite in Orissa is worth $2 trillion. Wow. The iron ore is something like that. Just then these MOUs were signed, the stocks of the mining company soared. Just that year, I mean just two weeks into the signing of two of the biggest of these MOUs, the Salva Judum, which is a, a kind of tribal people's militia, was, uh, was let loose. And it, it went through the forest, burning villages, killing and raping people. And this was a policy of what is called strategic hamleting. I mean, you know it from this Vietnam. This is from the Vietnam era. That's right. The Salwa Jodham was a militia, but it was created by the reactionary Indian state in 2005. The organization Sawajuram in the Gondi language can be translated as, quote, purification hunt. In 2011, the organization was declared illegal by the Supreme Court, but it continued to carry out raids. Described in the book Operation Green Hunt, Social Practices of the Genocidal Counterinsurgency Strategy of Hearts and Minds, Written by Adolfo Naya Fernandez and published by Foreign Languages Press, it says, In 2005, the Indian government, with its counterinsurgency tactics, created the Sawajuram Group. This group, together with government security forces, initiated a series of raids in various towns with the aim of identifying and eliminating suspected Naxalite sympathizers. They carried out raids in the Dantawada and the Bijapur districts, where the Adivasi and indigenous people make up 70% of the population. It ended with the burning of more than 670 villages and the torture, rape, and murder of the population. 
Also, the Strategic Hamlet program can be traced back to the U.S. imperialist war in Vietnam. Together with the South Vietnamese government, it was created in 1961 with the aim of preventing the spread of communism, specifically with the peasantry in the rural areas, as the Viet Cong was winning over village by village. This strategic hamlet program created special villages built for loyal South Vietnamese to separate them from the communists, baiting them with new schools, hospitals, electricity, and other modern conveniences. Often enough, these new villages were too far from the fields in which the peasant worked, and many did not even want to leave their own villages having a long-standing hereditary lineage in that village. In addition, much of the promised medical, military, and agricultural supplies were never received, somehow disappearing during their transit. On top of all this, the village chiefs of these new special villages were often corrupt. They stole and cheated the people in these hamlet villages. And we see a similar program which was created in India with the government-formed Salwal Jodham, under this counterinsurgency program, quote, hearts and minds, unquote, villagers were forced into fortified camps to prevent them from being infected by the malice insurgency, which is genocidal language. Let's take another quote from the FLP book Operation Green Hunt. Some reports speak of more than 350,000 Adivasis forced to leave their villages and live in these new fortified camps. In these camps, the population is controlled in all aspects of their lives, from feeding to birth. In November 2014, 14 women died after undergoing sterilization operations in one of these camps. According to the Human Rights Watch, thousands of people were forcibly transferred to government-run Sawajodam group camps near police stations or paramilitary camps. In 2008, Internally displaced people housed in these camps had limited access to food, with only some people receiving free rations. They also lacked shelter, sanitation facilities, access to health services, or even access to education. The two big MOUs in this district called Bastar were signed in April and May 2005. And in June, uh, this people's government-sponsored people's militia was let loose on, on something like 640 villages. And it went through these villages, burning, burning them down, killing people, raping women, and forcing people to move into police camps. Some went voluntarily and some didn't. So about 50,000 people moved into the camps, and about 300,000 people went off the government radar. Some of them, of course, went away to work in other states. Some are still, many are still hiding in the forests, afraid to come to their villages, impossible to go to the market. You many, know, many of these people are not necessarily part of the Maoist movement. Many are not, but many are, you know. I guess they're but, becoming, is that yeah, what you're suggesting? That the, the Salvajurum didn't work. It backfired, and more and more people became part of the Maoist movement. So now they've, ordered, they've announced a full-scale war, which is called Operation Green Hunt, where something like 70,000 paramilitary troops are closing in on the indigenous people of this country. 
So, so, so having been inside um, and living with the people in this movement that you've been writing about for years from the outside, how do you compare the portrait that were offered in the official story and what you witnessed living among those people? See, what, what, what I think has happened, which is, is very terrifying, and I think even scholars who have studied this kind of thing before have said, is that when a population of people is being prepared to be wiped off the map, not as in put into concentration cramps and shot or gassed, but this is a population that is not a consumer population. It's what the Germans used to call Übersaligen Essern, I think, which means superfluous eaters. They, they are not required. So it's important to make them, to either to demonize them or to make them completely f faceless so that when you slaughter them or when you lay siege to them and they're already starving and malnutritioned, when they disappear, you don't notice. So that the rest of the population can live with their consciences clear. So that's what's going on, you know, that they're trying to, to dehumanize them in a way, to, to make it impossible, because it's true that the Maoists' rhetoric can be quite ugly. And they do say very openly they want to overthrow the state. And there are, bo there are bodies piling up on both sides. Well, the bodies piling up on one side and the other, you cannot compare, you know, for one. But the second thing is that, because, I mean, I'll t I just want to say two things. One is, I've been in that forest at night what do you do when 1,000 policemen come and surround a for forest village? I mean, do you go on a hunger strike? Or, or what do you do? You have to fight back. And then they say, oh, did they kill the policemen? Isn't it terrible? But well, this is the country that gave the world the Gandhian uh, ethos. The Gandhian ethos is a very frightening ethos in the forest because the Gandhian ethos requires, it's, 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 it's performance that requires an audience. You know, and in the forest, there's no audience. In a society that doesn't belong to the rest of society, how do hungry people go on a hunger strike? How do people who have no money not pay their taxes or do civil disobedience? No one cares, no one's watching, you know? I think it's really important to understand that the Maoist movement and this tribal uprising is not able to function outside of the forest. You know, and there there are other kinds of resistance that are happening. So it's not the only resistance in India. There's a huge bandwidth of resistance, all of which the government is calling Maoist and killing people whether they are Maoist or not Maoist. To be clear, when Roy says that the Maoist movement cannot operate outside of the forest, this can be misinterpreted. The Maoists are indeed operating outside of the forest through mass organizations. They've written quite extensively on this. I'd recommend reading another FLP book, Urban Perspective. In chapter three of this book, the Indian Maoists write about the several different types of mass organizations that they've developed, of course, without naming them due to security reasons. But it is true that the armed struggle aspect of the movement cannot, as of yet, operate outside of the forest. This is a tactical decision. Revolutionary movements must think about asymmetrical warfare. Most communist parties begin with less than a dozen people. But eventually, over time, 
The party and the army grows in numbers simultaneously with its influence, eventually becoming the dominant influence in the entire country. For obvious reasons, if revolutionaries began armed struggle spontaneously with a small group of people, the reactionary state and even the masses will help in undoubtedly crushing them immediately. Now, let's move on to the next section of this episode where we will read the words of Roy from her own book, Walking with the Comrades. She writes about her personal experience in the forest with the Maoists. Roy was invited, as well as with other observers around the same time, give or take, because the reactionary state was and continues to spit out lies about the Maoists. So, the Maoists themselves welcomed independent journalists, writers, and observers to join them to actually see what they were doing. And what they were doing was amazing. After committing violent acts in a state, it seems that the center is more or less prepared for a long-drawn battle with the ultra-leftist. Sudeep Banerjee, AIR News, Kolkata. We're moving in single file now. Myself and 100 senselessly violent, bloodthirsty insurgents. I looked around at the camp before we left. There are no signs that almost 100 people had camped here except for some ash where the fires had been. I cannot believe this army. As far as consumption goes, it's more Gandhian than any Gandhian and has a lighter carbon footprint than any climate change evangelist. But for now, it even has a Gandhian approach to sabotage. Before a police vehicle is burnt, for example, it is stripped down and every part cannibalized. The steering wheel is straightened out and made into a barmar, the Rexine upholstery stripped and used for ammunition pouches, the battery for solar charging. The new instructions from the high command are that captured vehicles should be buried and not cremated so they can be resurrected when needed. We're walking in pitch darkness and dead silence. I'm the only one using a torch pointed down so that all I can see in its circle of light are comrade Kamla's bare heels in her scuffed black chapels, showing me exactly where to put my feet. She is carrying 10 times more weight than I am. Her backpack, her rifle, a huge bag of provisions on her head, one of the large cooking pots, and two shoulder bags full of vegetables. The bag on her head is perfectly balanced, and she can scramble down slopes and slippery rock pathways without so much as touching it. She is a miracle. It turns out to be a long walk. I'm grateful to the history lesson, because apart from everything else, it gave my feet a rest for a whole day. It's the most beautiful thing, walking in the forest at night, and I'll be doing it night after night. Arundhati Roy joins the Maoists and walks through the Dantakaranya. It's a forest in central East India, a stronghold for the Maoists. The forest is approximately 35,600 square miles, and it is home to millions of tribal people. The Indian media has called it the Red Corridor. Although the Dantakaranya has been seen by Indians as a sacred area of their country, 
Roy explains its contemporary importance. The fifth schedule of the Constitution provides protection to Adivasi people and disallows the alienation of their land. But it doesn't seem to matter at all. It looks as though the clause is there only to make the Constitution look good. A bit of window dressing, a slash of makeup. Scores of corporations, from relatively unknown ones to the biggest mining companies and steel manufacturers in the world, are in the fray to appropriate Adivasi homelands. The Mittals, Jindals, Tata, SR, Pasco, Rio Tinto, BH Billiton, and of course, Fedanta. There's a memorandum of understanding on every mountain, river, and forest glade. We're talking about social and environmental engineering on an unimaginable scale. And most of this is secret. It's not in the public domain. Somehow, I don't think the plans that are afoot to destroy one of the world's most pristine forests and ecosystems, as well as the people who live in it, will be discussed at the climate change conference in Copenhagen. Our 24-hour news channels that are so busy hunting for macabre stories of Maoist violence and making them up when they run out of the real thing seem to have no interest at all in this side of the story. I wonder why. Samaya's platoon is just one of many. There are thousands of men and women concealed in this forest, fighting what they call India's corruption and injustice. War-weary Samaya tells me that only a revolution can bring about a more just society. As Roy joins the Maoists in the forest, walking from village to village, sometimes sleeping in the middle of the forest, she learns about their governmental structure. She finds that it is extremely democratic, poking holes in all the lies perpetuated by the reactionary Indian state. Today, Dandakaranya is administered by an elaborate structure of Janatana Sarkars, or people's governments. The organizing principles came from the Chinese Revolution and the Vietnam War. Each people's government is elected by a cluster of villages, 30 of 88, whose combined population can range from 500 to 5,000. It has nine departments, agriculture, trade and industry, economic, justice, defense, health, public relations, education and culture, and jungle. A group of people's governments come under an area committee. Three area committees make up a division. There are ten divisions in the Dandakaranya forest. A fundamental core of any proletarian struggle includes the struggle for women's liberation, both within the movement and within society, to fight against patriarchy and male chauvinism. One organization for women's issues in India is the Krantikari Adivasi Mahila Sangathan, or simply put, KAMS, K-A-M-S. The translation is Revolutionary Adivasi Women's Organization. It is one of the largest in India, and the Indian Maoists have a huge influence in it. KAMS has somewhere between 90,000 and 100,000 members. 
Before hearing the words of Roy, please know that there are some terms used in the following which may be triggering for anyone with traumatic experiences around sexual abuse. Unfortunately, this is a very real and serious problem around the world, but also specifically in the current conditions of India. Kamran Narmada talks about the many years she worked in Gadchiroli before becoming the Dandakaranya head of the women's organization, Kams. Rupi and Mas have been urban activists in Andhra Pradesh and tell me about the long years of struggle of women within the party, not just for their rights, but also to make the party see that equality between men and women is central to a dream of a just society. We talk about the 70s and the stories of women within the Naxalite movement who were disillusioned by male comrades who thought themselves great revolutionaries, but were hobbled by the same old patriarchy, the same old chauvinism. Ma says things have changed a lot since then, though they still have a long way to go. The party's Politburo has no women yet. The Central Committee had Anuradha Gandhi, who died of cerebral malaria last year and Sheila, an Adivasi comrade who is now in jail. The comms campaigns against the Adivasi traditions of forced marriage and abduction, against the custom of making menstruating women live outside the village in a hut in the forest, against bigamy and domestic violence. It hasn't won all its battles, but then which feminists have? For instance, in Dandakaranya forest, even today, women are not allowed to sow seeds. In party meetings, men agree that this is unfair and ought to be done away with, but in practice, they simply don't allow it. So the party decided that women would sow seeds on common lands which belongs to the people's government. On that land, they sow seeds, grow vegetables, and build check dams. A half victory, not a whole one. As police repression has grown in Bastar, the women of Kams have become a formidable force and rally in their hundreds, sometimes thousands, to physically confront the police. The very fact that Kams exists has radically changed traditional attitudes and eased many of the traditional forms of discrimination against women. For many young women, Joining the party, in particular the PLGA, became a way of escaping the suffocation of their own society. Comrade Sushila, a senior office bearer of comms, talks about the Sawa Jidam's rage against comms women. She says one of their slogans was, we will have two wives, we will. A lot of the rape and bestial sexual mutilation was directed at members of comms. Many young women who witnessed the savagery then joined the PLGA, and now women make up 45% of its cadre. Another important aspect within the movement in India is in the realm of cultural work. The Indian Malas have created what is called cultural troops, 
A troupe is a group of actors or performers, especially ones who travel from place to place. They perform plays which have political messages within them. Mao once said the following about art quote, In the world today, all culture, all literature, and art belong to definite classes and are geared to definite political lines. There is, in fact, no such thing as art for art's sake. Art that stands above classes, art that is detached from or independent of politics. Proletarian literature and art are part of the whole proletarian revolutionary cause. They are, as Lenin said, cogs and wheels in the whole revolutionary machine. End quote. This is from the talks at the Yenon Forum on Literature and Art, 1942. In addition, in an interview with Comrade Kieran from the Nepalese Maoist Struggle, published in the Kites Journal, Kieran said the following about the importance of cultural troops. Quote, the cultural troops have been helpful to arouse the revolutionary consciousness among the basic masses in Nepal. The cultural program emotionally attracts people towards it, whether or not they are politically motivated. The revolutionary songs and other performances teach them politics. They join the cultural programs to get entertained by songs, dances, and operas, but return with their minds filled with revolutionary ideology and politics. It is an easy way to approach the common people and teach them revolution. It is our experience that a well-set revolutionary cultural program can influence the general masses more effectively than a well-versed orator who delivers lectures in a huge mass meeting. Folk songs and dances are more effective than a lavishly modernized orchestra." End quote. A few more speeches, then the drumming and the dancing begins. Each people's government has its own troupe, a group of performers. Each troupe has prepared its own dance. They arrive one by one with huge drums and they dance wild stories. The only character every troop has in common is Bad Mining Man with a helmet and dark glasses and usually smoking a cigarette. But there's nothing stiff or mechanical about their dancing. As they dance, the dust rises. The sound of drums becomes deafening. Gradually, the crowd begins to sway and then it begins to dance. They dance in little lines of six or seven, men and women separate, with their arms around each other's waists. Thousands of people. This is what they've come for, for this. Happiness is taken very seriously here in the Dandakaranya forest. People will walk for miles, for days together, to feast and sing, to put feathers in their turbans and flowers in their hair, to put their arms around each other and drink mahua and dance through the night. No one sings or dances alone. This, more than anything else, signals their defiance towards a civilization that seeks to annihilate them. I can't believe all this is happening right under the noses of the police, right in the midst of Operation Green Hunt. In 2009, the reactionary Indian state launched its all-out offensive of paramilitary and state forces against the Naxalites, what the state deemed the greatest internal security threat. 
The Maoists were the target, and the reactionary Indian state expanded its definition of Maoists to anyone and anything that opposed its reactionary rule. Not only were Maoists being targeted and hunted, but a cultural genocide began to play out. The forced displacement of the Adivasi communities, tied with the extreme violence of the state, were backed up with the intention to exploit the mining resources found in the areas where Adivasi communities had lived for centuries. In the book Operation Green Hunt, the author states that the counterinsurgency operation Green Hunt is just a continuation of the strategies used in places like Malaysia, Kenya, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Afghanistan, called Hearts and Minds. This counterinsurgency strategy seeks two goals. On the one hand, it seeks the total elimination of the insurgency, while on the other hand, seeks the legitimacy of reactionary government institutions from the population with the objective of breaking ties with insurgent forces. In keeping with this line of thought, the government has announced Operation Green Hunt, a war purportedly against the Maoist rebels headquartered in the jungles of central India. Of course, the Maoists are by no means the only ones rebelling. People are engaged in a whole spectrum of struggles all over the country. The landless, the homeless, Dalits, workers, peasants, weavers. They're pitted against a juggernaut of injustices, including policies that allow a wholesale corporate takeover of people's land and resources. However, it is the Maoists the government has singled out as being the biggest threat. Here's a math question. If it takes 600,000 soldiers to hold down the tiny valley of Kashmir, how many will it take to contain the mounting rage of hundreds of millions of people? So here's the Indian state in all its democratic glory, willing to loot, starve, lay siege to, and now deploy the Air Force in self-defense against its poorest citizens. Self-defense, ah, yes. Operation Green Hunt is being waged in self-defense by a government that is trying to restore land to poor people whose land has been snatched away by commie corporations. Are the Maoists really interested in peace or justice, people ask? Is there anything they can be offered within the existing system that will deflect the Maoists from their stated goal of overthrowing the Indian state? The answer to that is probably not. The Maoists do not believe that the present system can deliver justice. The thing is that an increasing number of people are beginning to agree with them. If we lived in a society with a genuinely democratic impulse, one in which ordinary people felt they could at least hope for justice, then the Maoists would only be a small, marginalized group of militants with very little popular appeal. Over the last few months, the government has poured tens of thousands of heavily armed paramilitary troops into the forest. The Maoists responded with a series of aggressive attacks and ambushes. More than 200 policemen have been killed. The bodies keep coming out of the forest. Slain policemen wrapped in the national flag. Slain Maoists displayed like hunters' trophies, their wrists and ankles lashed to bamboo poles, bullet-ridden bodies, bodies that don't look human anymore, mutilated in ambushes, beheadings, and summary executions. 
Of the bodies being buried in the forest, we have no news. The theater of war has been cordoned off, closed to activists and journalists, so there are no body counts. The one favor Operation Green Hunt has done ordinary people is that it has clarified things to them. Even the children in the villages know that the police work for the companies and that Operation Green Hunt isn't a war against Maoists, it's a war against the poor. When it comes to socialism and communist parties in India, there are a few of them. So we should take some time to discuss this problem. The problem lies between revisionist and anti-revisionist forces. When someone says the Communist Party of India, we need to know which communist party is being referred to. There's been many splinters in the past in the communist movement in India, but right now there are three competing communist parties in India. There's the Communist Party of India, or CPI, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, CPIM, or sometimes CPM. And then we have the Communist Party of India, Maoists, who are referred to as Naxals, Naxalites, or Maoists. The CPI Marxist is probably the most popularly known here in the U.S. as they are in power within a few states in India prominently in Kerala. It was relieving to hear from Roy on the division between these parties and how the CPI Marxist party has become so counter-revolutionary. It's hard to say who dislikes the Maoists more. The Indian state, its army of strategic experts and instinctively right-wing middle class, or the Communist Party of India and the Communist Party of India Marxist, usually called CPM the several splinter groups that were part of the original Marxist-Leninists or the liberal left. The argument begins with nomenclature. The more orthodox communists do not believe that Maoism is an ism at all. The Maoists, in turn, call the mainstream communist parties social fascists and accuse them of economism, basically of gradually bargaining away the prospect of revolution. But few would associate the word revolutionary with the CPI or the CPM anymore. The CPI is involved in a struggle against the POSCO plant in Orissa, but it is only demanding that the plant be relocated. Even in their chosen sphere of influence, they cannot claim to have done a great service to the proletariat they say they represent. Apart from their traditional bastions in Kerala and West Bengal, both of which they are losing their grip over, they have very little presence in any other part of the country, urban or rural, forest or plains. They have run their trade unions into the ground. They have not been able to staunch the massive job losses and the virtual disbanding of the formal workplace that mechanization and the new economic policies have caused. They have not been able to prevent the systematic dismantling of workers' rights. They have managed to alienate themselves almost completely from Adivasi and Dalit communities. In Kerala, many would say they have done a better job than other political parties, but their 30-year rule in West Bengal has left that state in ruins. The repression they unleashed in Nandagram and Singur 
and now against the Adivasis of Jangal Mahal will probably drive them out of power for a few years. Only for as long as it takes Mamata Banerjee of the Trinamul Congress to prove that she is not the vessel into which people should pour their hopes. Still, while listing a litany of their sins, it must be said that the demise of the mainstream communist parties is not something to be celebrated, at least not unless it makes way for a new, more vital, and genuinely left movement in India. It's an old story in India. Without militant resistance, the poor get pulverized. The minute the resistance becomes effective, the state moves in with all the armed might at its disposal. People who live in situations like this do not have easy choices. They certainly do not simply take instructions from a handful of ideologues who appear out of nowhere waving guns. Their decisions on what strategies to employ take into account a whole host of considerations. The history of the struggle, the nature of the repression, the urgency of the situation, and quite crucially, the landscape in which their struggle is taking place. The decision whether to be a Gandhian or a Maoist, militant or peaceful, or a bit of both, is not always a moral or ideological one. Quite often, it's a tactical one. Now that mining companies have polluted rivers, mined away state boundaries, wrecked ecosystems and unleashed civil war, the consequences are playing out like an ancient lament over ruined landscapes and the bodies of the poor. <laughs>